Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag your mind Good evening everyone Welcome back You're watching the Maverick News Channel Great to have everyone here uh, lots on tap tonight. Food aid being dropped on Gaza by the United States. Protests in the streets, really around the world, over Gaza tonight. We'll take you to uh, St. Louis. Polar bear plunge to help kids with cancer. The Ruby Mar, that ship in uh, a ship that was attacked by the Houthis, it has gone under a landfill issue in Canada, uh, Texas wildfires affecting agriculture in a major way down there, a big concern for people. The Netherlands is sending more aid to Ukraine, military aid, while Italy's uh, PM meets with uh, Justin Trudeau and Jeremy McKenzie looks like he had his Twitter account suspended so we'll have all that and more and at the end we will be running that feature interview with uh, Grant Abraham with the United Party of Canada as this is just uh, we're this is the final weekend before Voters go to the polls in a by-election, an important by-election in Canada that should give us some indication and insight into what the political mood is like right now in Canada and maybe even beyond. So stick with me. I'll be right back on the other side of this. Feel the vibrations. Our quest continues. The truth is out there. The information war is raging. Truth without integrity is worth nothing. Maverick News. Because those who have power and those who seek it must be held accountable. The world is watching. Join our family of truth seekers. Donate today and add your voice to the chorus of Maverick Knights. Donate at maverickdonations.com Truth Integrity It's the Maverick way. 
Maverick News. The world is watching. I'm back and food aid is being dropped in Gaza by the United States. We have this footage. Hundreds of thousands of people in a pretty desperate situation in Gaza. We're uh, seeing reports of uh, severe hunger. And Biden continues to fumble and bumble and stumble. This was uh, him speaking about dropping food aid here he is so detached from reality and the even the room around him that he talks about dropping food aid on Ukraine only to be corrected by a reporter in this scrum. There is some movement and I don't want to I don't want to I'll maybe choose my words. There's some movement. There's been a response from the, uh, the, the there's been a response from the opposition. But um, it, it, yes, I'm sorry, from Hamas. There is some movement, and I don't want to. I don't want to. Well, maybe choose my words. There's some movement. There's been a response from the, uh, the, the there's been a response from the opposition. But um, it, it, yes, I'm sorry, from Hamas. I think we need to be very afraid. Very, very afraid. This is ridiculous. The uh, the senility. It's on full display. Tonight, also Elon Musk saying that uh, in a in a post just within the last couple of hours, he says the massive flood of illegal immigration into the United States is due to 94 executive actions by the Biden administration. Musk goes on and says, until those executive actions are revoked, claims by Biden that he wants to address illegal immigration are a bold-faced lie. Here, I'll show you the post and then listen to this clip of Biden responding to this issue. This also ridiculous. The reporter asking him why are you waiting to take executive action on the border? 
Biden here says that he has no authority to do anything on the border. Listen to this. Why are you waiting to take executive action on the border? Because we need more forces on the border. I don't have the authority to do that. If the president of the United States doesn't have the authority to protect the country by providing security at the border, who does? Uh, I don't know. I, again, it's it's just this stuff doesn't even make sense. Does not even make sense. And then back to the issue of Gaza, Israel is being accused of opening fire on civilians while they rush to pick up that food aid. In particular, there were trucks in the area in Gaza and probably thousands of people came to get the food aid and they are accused, Israel is accused of opening fire on the civilians, as you can see in this footage here. And I've been watching this, this footage. It's difficult from the aerial perspective to really understand exactly what's going on. Some of these closer images give you a better indication of what has been happening. And again, I'm trying to be very careful about what we report here because I want to be absolutely accurate. And with all of this footage coming out on Twitter or X, so much of what is seen on there is not always accurate or sometimes just outright fabrication. But these images certainly appear to be authentic. I'm just not sure what the full context is on these images. We know that Hamas is claiming that as many as 30,000 people have now been killed in Gaza. And there are witnesses who have uh, testified, well, have testified, it's not like it's in court, but they have provided eyewitness accounts of Israeli forces opening fire on Palestinians who had gathered in the open area of Gaza City. They were there to receive food aid and other humanitarian aid. Now, the Ministry of Health in Gaza, which is run by Hamas, says that at least 104 people were killed, more than 750 others wounded. The Israeli Defense Forces say the casualties were the result of what they're calling a violent gathering of Gazan residents around the aid trucks. It says dozens of people were injured as a result of being crushed and trampled. So two different accounts of what led to the deaths and the injuries there. Israel saying it's because the trucks were rushed by the people. You had a massive mob. Some of them were run over, crushed, trampled by the others in the, in the crowd. Hamas saying that Israeli forces opened fire and shot and killed them. I can't really tell from the footage that I've seen 
one way or the other. All I have is the two different accounts. You can make up your own mind. Either way, we are absolutely dealing with a human tragedy all the way around. The good news is it looks like a ceasefire may finally be on the horizon. There has been a deal brokered involving certain conditions, including the release of hostages. At last word, Hamas is expected to respond. It looks like the ball is right now in their court to see if that ceasefire deal can move forward. We'll continue to monitor that, keep an eye on it. But they've been um, working on this for weeks now, international mediators involved. They want to broker a deal to pause the fighting before the Muslim holy month of Ramadan begins around March 10th. This deal would allow aid to reach hundreds of thousands of desperate people in northern Gaza. And so the Israelis have, I guess, basically accepted this proposal and it includes the six-week ceasefire as well as the release of Hamas hostages considered vulnerable, which includes the sick, the wounded, the elderly, and women. So that's a positive thing as well. Officials from Israel and from Hamas have not responded to requests from media at this point for comment. U.S. military planes, as I say, began the first airdrops of thousands of meals into Gaza. And the militaries of Jordan and Egypt say that they also conducted airdrops. Aid groups say airdrops are really a course of last resort and instead urge the opening of other crossings into Gaza and the removal of obstacles in order to get more aid to the people there. Apparently, people are becoming extremely desperate for food, mixing, well, they're, they're going after things like bird seed and uh, just anything else that they can use for food. And some people saying, if uh, in, in some cases, people are not eating at all some days or they're down to like even children one meal a day. So absolutely a tragedy. All of this prompting more protests in the streets, of course. This the scene in St. Louis, where thousands of people came out into the streets to protest.
right now. There's protests just uh, have become a regular part of the landscape on streets in ma most major cities across Canada, the United States, and beyond. Moving on to other news related though, that British owned bulk carrier Rubimar which was hit by Houthi anti, an, a Houthi anti-ship missile two weeks ago. It was languishing. Still afloat, but severely damaged. Loaded with 41,000 tons of fertilizer. So when they hit that thing, they created an environmental disaster which has now become, I would say, irreparable. You can't undo this one, at least not very easily. A giant tanker ship filled with fertilizer now at the bottom of the sea. Here's some video. So this is what it looked like. Of course, you can't see it now because it's underwater, completely fully submerged. But that was, that is the ship that went down. And all that fertilizer, an ecological disaster. This is the first ship actually lost as a result of these Houthi strikes. And most shipping companies now, I think, avoiding using those shipping lanes altogether, instead going around, adding a lot of miles to their journeys at a lot of cost. So that is a situation that continues. Wildfires in Texas, they're still raging. They have consumed, these fires have consumed a record number of acres in flames. It is now the largest wildfire in Texas history, and it has devastated the state's agriculture, ripping through one million acres of land in the panhandle, killing thousands of livestock, destroying crops, and gutting infrastructure. The agricultural industry, of course, is the biggest, well, one of the biggest drivers of the state's economy. And it was already under pressure because of prolonged widespread drought. That's had a major impact on ranchers, forcing them to manage smaller herds, contributing to less beef production nationally. That, of course, putting upward pressure on prices at the supermarkets. And these wildfires in the panhandle this week, well, that's just another huge blow to agriculture, especially to ranchers, as they try to rebuild their herds. 
Over 85% of the state's cattle population is located on ranches in the Panhandle. <clears throat> That's a statistic that comes directly from the Texas Department of Agriculture. In 2021, which is the most recent year with complete statistics, agriculture accounted for 9% of the gross state product in Texas, 9%. That adds $186 billion to the state's economy. It isn't clear exactly how much cattle has been lost in these wildfires, but it is beyond, it, it's, it's large, we know that. We just don't have exact numbers, it's too early. And this, of course, again, a record, a record number of acres destroyed, including prime grazing land. So the long-term impact on, of this, it will be felt. Now, there are some programs in place to assist farmers affected by these wildfires but this is going to have a major impact on the food supply and on agriculture in general, not just this year, but in you know, the next couple of years in particular moving forward. So we continue to monitor that as well tonight as we have for the last couple of nights. Now Biden I'm sure you've seen the clip of him making reference to a lot of these buildings burning, he says, except for the ones with the right kind of roof. That has led to a lot of speculation, uh, as I'm sure you understand, about what that means. What kind of roof? Is he referring to the color of roof? Well, maybe, but... I think really what he's getting at is uh, not that I want to help Biden out that much because of his uh, obvious shortcomings, <laughs> but really there are different types of roofing products that are used. Some, you know, there are metal roofs, there are asphalt shingle roofs, cedar shake, cedar, sh cedar shakes and shingles. They're class A, class B type uh, types of roofing products. Class A is the, the most uh, fire resistant. Those are roofing products made from fiberglass, asphalt shingles, impregnated with fiberglass. There are also shingles and concrete or clay tiles. They can be less, they're, they're more fire resistant as well. So that, I think, is potentially what he was referring to. Of course, some people instantly going to reverting or being triggered to thinking that it's got something to do with laser beams and the color of the roof. If they're blue roof, they're supposed to be, at least according to the theory, resistant to attacks from above. But I think really the larger issue or the larger or more realistic 
reference is to the type of building material used and how resistant it is to sparks and ash, cinders flying through the air, carried by high winds, landing on roofs, and setting structures on fire. This is a clip from a video with some roofing experts talking about exactly this, this subject and what kind of building products are best to prevent fires or, or the spread of fires from wildfires. In fact, all building materials, whether it's drywall, insulation, flooring products, everything um, has to meet some sort of standard. In, in terms of the way that it's manufactured, to make sure that it is fire safe or fire resistant in some fashion. Now, Donald Trump still on a roll. He swept Michigan's complicated and crazy Republican convention caucuses in Michigan. That's the projection anyway. It looks like he's uh, projected to win overwhelming majorities in each of the state's 13 congressional districts. That means he collects 100% of the vote in four and more than 90% in nearly all of the others. Those are still unofficial numbers that have been reported by party officers in real time. So that's results coming out in real time, but everything still needs to be verified and declared official. However, with that much of a margin, it's very clear that, yeah, Trump Again, the victor, Nikki Haley, languishing. And so uh, today, the Michigan GOP officially affirmed the results of the primary. Based on those results, Trump won 12 delegates and Haley won four. Idaho and Missouri also are holding GOP presidential caucuses. He's just so far out in front, there's no way she can catch him. I don't know how much more of this punishment she's going to have to take before she decides to finally drop out. I don't know what it is that is keeping her in the race. Maybe just a uh, um, wishful thinking, a hope that maybe, just maybe, something will happen and Trump will 
be declared ineligible to run. She's still hanging in there, though. Back to um, the war front. The Netherlands has announced it's sending another package of military aid to Ukraine. This will include 22 vessels for Ukraine's um, naval forces, such as they are, not that they really have a full-up navy. But 22 new vessels, I guess uh, three of these are CB-90 fast armored assault boats. Sweden has announced they're sending 10 vessels as part of this. Show you a little bit of footage of what these things look like. So the money continues to flow. Money continues to flow. This is a promotional video of uh, what these, uh, these ships, small vessels, look like. This is produced, I believe, by Saab, which is the corporation that I think builds these. So this is not footage from Ukraine. This is, uh, I think this is on the Thames River. Or as they say over there, the River Thames. Yeah. And you see the Swedish flag on the back. So these are the types of vessels that Sweden will be sending to Ukraine. money continues to flow. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue with uh, our coverage of world news because today Italy came to Canada as uh, Italy's leader met with Canada's leader, Justin Trudeau. We'll tell you about it on the other side of this. news. The world is watching. Okay. So, Canada plays host to Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni. Now, the mainstream media is kind of uh, losing its mind over this because they consider 
Maloney to be far right. I think it also, I think they're also losing their minds because Trudeau has given her a warm reception in Canada, in Ottawa. A meeting today, there were protests outside on the streets as people uh, waited for the Italian PM to arrive to meet with Trudeau. They discussed Ukraine, of course, and aid for Ukraine. Unlikely partners in a way because Maloney has at home back in Italy really taken steps to, well, reform culture or maybe some would say restore more traditional values in her country. Since last May, she has uh, taken steps to dial back what I would say are progressive, um, progressive positions or progressive policies, progressive legislation relating to things like LGBTQS plus rights or cultural progressions within society. She's working on new immigration legislation over there. But she is also, I would say, cultivating warm relations with other European leaders and with Justin Trudeau. You know, normally they would be criticizing her in a pretty severe, severe way. Uh, over here, people like Trudeau, the Liberals, the NDP, progressives over here, Trudeau last year, voicing his concerns because she outlawed international surrogacy and carried through on her promises to revoke the legal rights of some gay parents. She has also taken a hard line on some protests, cracking down on protesters. But with the war in Ukraine still ongoing and the need for money to flow, they seemed to strike a common ground today in Ottawa during this photo opportunity where they took some time to highlight the key issues for the media. Please have a seat. Well, what a tremendous pleasure it is to welcome Prime Minister Maloney to, uh, to Canada. Uh, Georgia, we just uh, saw each other a week ago in Ukraine. Uh, not only demonstrated Italy and uh, and the G7's commitment to supporting Ukraine, uh, you posted the, uh, a G7 uh, video conference and uh, and uh, in-person conference for us uh, that was really really important. Uh, your leadership uh, in the G7 is going to be really important this year. There's so many big issues, and you have really uh, demonstrated not just this year but uh, over the last year as well uh, a tremendous. 
uh, ability to pull together with ambition the kinds of work that we need to do. And I'm really, really looking forward to that. To working with you on that and, and hopefully setting up Canada's uh, G7 year, following year, uh, with the kind of uh, momentum and continuity that I know we all, we all need. Uh, Canada and Italy are so aligned on so many things. We have uh, a very deep and growing economic relationship as well. Uh, but whether we're talking about uh, AI, whether we're talking about manufacturing, whether we're talking about the challenges of, of migration and labor shortages and everything that goes in together, uh, there's a lot of really great work uh, to do together, and I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I especially Very, uh, appreciate that we always have a focus on concrete outcomes and yeah. deliverables. It's not just talking about important yeah. things, it's making sure they deliver, and I think that's quite frankly what the world accepts. Uh, expects from, from Italy, from the G7, uh, and from all of us as we deal with really big issues. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this meeting and looking forward to all the work we do, all the, we do this year. We pull away for a moment, bring it forward, so, and let's pick up her comments here. Thank you very much and thank you for this warm welcome. Uh, and this tool that I'm doing in the G7 countries to share uh, the main topics I would like to bring to the, to the G7 leader summit that we will have in Puglia on June. Yeah, well. I will be very happy to have you there, uh, where you can taste also a bit of the Italian traditions and so on. Uh, but I think you're right when you say that there are many things that we are sharing and that we will have to share. And I'm happy with that, for you will be the next president of the G7. So it is important that we do a work that can go on through the years. So there, there are many results of the Japanese presidency that I will be, bring through the Italian one, as for example, artificial intelligence and the role of Indo-Pacific, but also the respect of international uh, rule-based order, so the support to Ukraine uh, in this very difficult Middle East crisis on which also we have to talk a lot, uh, avoiding an escalation of the conflict. I've been discussing about that uh, yesterday with Joe Biden too. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, for example, I was saying artificial intelligence. I know it is a topic that we share for it is, a, well, a tool but as anyone, it can be bad or good, it depends on how we govern it. So I'm um, concerned, moreover, on the impact of artificial intelligence. If we don't govern it in the right way, it could happen in the labor market, for example. So I think it is a global issue that we have to discuss uh, together. And uh, I know that we are on the same path on many of this, of this problem that we have to discuss in this very uh, difficult uh, era in which we are governing our countries. And then on the bilateral level, I'm very happy of the work we are doing today for we are beginning a new era of our relationship, trying to enhance uh, our cooperation. And I think there are many, many topics on which we can do that. Also for, as you know, we have this very big community here of Italian Canadians, so next time, I, uh, in an international uh, meeting, I expect you to talk also a bit in Italian. <laughs> so we have another language, and I can help you on that if you want. Grazie. But, <laughs> prego. But in any case, uh, in any case, uh, 
research, uh, infrastructures, uh, artificial intelligence, um, sustainable environmental transition. There are many, many things of which I think uh, the, the, uh, well, the Italian capacity can be put uh, also uh, on the table to help uh, developing both, uh, and, and I hope that also on investments we can discuss a lot. So there is big, big, big work to do uh, on the G7 presidency and about our enhanced cooperation. My task is that we are concrete. So we need to work on concrete results. It is better to have less, but they have to be concrete. So they have to change things, and that is something on which I know I can very well work with you. So thank you for hosting us, and thank you for uh, the work that we will do together. Thank you, thank you very much. All right. Okay, more to come right after this. Exile. The Knights of Malta. Maverick News. Join us. The world is watching. So as part of her, her tour to North America, she also, Maloney, also met with Joe Biden. And in creepy fashion, he kissed her on the head. I don't know if he was sniffing her hair at the same time, but he did that. And then he said this. He, he was playing Ray Charles or something when she walked through the door. Just more weird stuff. Well, Prime Minister Maloney, thank you for being here again. And I have to admit to you, as she walked in the door, we're good friends. And I played Ray Charles, Georgia. As she walked in the door. Now, most of you don't know Ray Charles George, but anyway, look good. Okay. I don't know. He's just, it just, it's creepy, but getting weirder by the day. I don't get it. I do. They can control him. He's not really in charge. He's just a suit, an empty suit that he fills up. And that is really the extent of it. He's just out in front. He has people pulling the strings behind him to implement this hard left agenda, this woke progressive agenda. <sighs> Jeremy McKenzie. More hard times, or at least another obstacle on social media for him just noticed this today don't really know a lot about what's behind it yet but apparently his account on x has been suspended so of course his main partner and and uh confidant morgan mayhem posting tonight that elon musk is a cuck it says and uh, has a 
Star of David next to the post. And the, the post here says X suspends accounts that violate our rules. Don't know the details. I'm sure we'll find out more in the days ahead. If warranted, we'll give it a further mention here on the program. Just something of note for people who I know maybe follow Jeremy McKenzie. You won't be finding him on Twitter, at least not very easily tonight. And I, should, I don't mean to laugh. It's a, a serious matter. There's censorship. Very frustrating for people, especially creators. What else do we have tonight? Well, the, the backlash, the fallout from the election of George Galloway of the Workers' Party. Um, still sending shockwaves through the UK. Some people very concerned. Other people applauding. He did win a, a, a big majority in the by-election that he ran in. But it prompted as we showed you last night, a speech from the Prime Minister of Britain, Rishi Sunak, who issued a warning about a rise in extremism from the what he's calling the far right, although Galloway has always been described as a left-wing or maybe even far-left socialist. I, last night, said that he's more like a far-right communist. <laughs> It's all wrapping around. But more than that, it isn't even so much the labels that are of concern to a lot of people. Here he is here with his victory speech. Last night saying that he had won this by-election for Israel. It's a question really for some of integrity. As people dig into his past and keep coming up with Concerning things, alarming things, like this back in 2009, where he quite literally reaches into a bag and hands wads of cash to people representing Hamas, that certainly at the time was considered terrorist organization today still considered that way by many others not as concerned about Hamas as they used to be your perspective may vary uh, but this is this is what it looked like back in 2009 and I just before I tee this up, he was asked by a reporter um, when he was elected in a post-victory speech interview if he supports Hamas. He sort of dodged the question. In fact, he didn't sort of dodge it. He straight up did dodge it, saying instead that he's against the uh, occupation of Palestine illegally, he says, by Israel. 
but this was what he was doing back in 2009 with uh, wads of cash at a news conference. And it's freezing up. Here we go. And if I could, I would give them 10 times, 100 times more. We are against this siege. We are opposing this siege. We are breaking this siege. We are breaking this siege. So that news conference, as I understand, it was really a response by Galloway to accusations that, it, that an organization that he fronted that was collecting donations for Palestinian aid had not distributed any of the money. So he went to that news conference, but only to be subsequently accused of than actually handing the money to Hamas instead of to the people who really need the aid. What am I talking about? Well, it's this. It's an organization um, that was in existence back in 2009. And then there was an inquiry or an investigation into this, these allegations that donations to Viva Palestina, which was formerly a registered charity, did not really distribute the, the funds to the people it was supposed to go to. It says here, the charity's objects were for the alleviation of the suffering and to help the people of Gaza rebuild their land, which further specified the following, provision from the UK of food, medicine, essential goods, etc., to highlight the causes and results of wars, purchase and procure for distribution within Gaza, medicines, medical supplies, But the investigation, and this is on a government, a UK government uh, website, goes through this decision, outlines real concerns, says, according to these findings, that there was a failure to comply with legal duties and responsibilities to submit financial accounts. In fact, during the investigation, the organization apparently failed to provide any of the required documents to the investigators, which is a violation of law. This goes back some time. It was a failure to address financial management issues, failure to take action to remedy regulatory issues for charitable donations. It says trustees did not control the charity's funds and or assets in day-to-day -day management of the charity. So there were real concerns even back then. Still concerns today. And allegations that George Galloway is anti-Semitic. The politics thicken.
and I'm sure we'll be hearing more about George Galloway, and I'm sure that the controversy will, uh, will only escalate around him. Now, I just wanted to just briefly mention this. You know, there's so much, <clears throat> excuse me, distrust of police in the United States, in Canada, in Canada, especially after what happened during the Freedom Convoy. And it's extremely unfortunate. It is inexcusable, really, what government has done by commissioning the services of police for political purposes, in my opinion. That is what has led to the deterioration of public trust in our policing, our police services. But our police are our neighbors. Not all police are bad. I'd say most of them are very good people. And today they were involved in uh, this charitable exercise, a polar plunge in St. Thomas, Ontario on Lake Erie to raise funds for kids with cancer and the Special Olympics, I guess. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to run this little video here because if police could just get back to the basics and a community-focused policing model, it would go a long way to restoring public trust and being involved in the community in this way, I think, does help. So I, I just wanted to run this video of theirs to, uh, to highlight the efforts that they made today, which I think are very positive indeed. We need our police. Hi everybody, it's Sergeant Ed Sanchez up with West Region OPP headquarters. I'm here at Turkey Point Beach with Staff Sergeant McTaggart for the Brant County OPP. Well, and guess sorry, who's behind me? Point. Who's behind me? There's another one at St. Thomas for cancer. Special Olympics police Olympics. from Norfolk County. And uh, I'm just going to turn the camera around because Staff McTaggart has a special surprise for everybody leading up to a polar plunge in Brant County next Thursday. Staff, thanks for taking time to join me. We're here at Lake Erie right now. And what are you about to do, Staff? <laughs> well, Ed, a couple weeks ago, um, a colleague in my office challenged me to do a pre-plunge uh, prior to our polar plunge on March 7th at North Park Collegiate in Brantford. So I'm here to accept that uh, challenge and do my best to uh, step into the warm waters of Lake Erie and uh, support Special Olympics and all of our Special Olympians which we have behind here. So, Staff, how was that? Freezing cold. So, everybody, North Park Collegiate, March 11th, Polar Plunge, March Plus Olympics. If you have the ability to donate for this fantastic cause, for these Special Olympians, we are here. And we'd like to really thank the OPP for all their support over the years in many, many sports. And I'd like to thank all of our athletes, coaches, and everybody. everybody there you go. So we did that. All right. I think we 
I've covered most, most of the, the top news of the day. I did want to mention that uh, earlier today we re-ran the all candidates debate, or the candidates debate because not all the candidates showed up, for the by-election in Canada and the riding of Durham, which is in the greater Toronto area. There's a by-election taking place up there. Um, it's an important by-election. I think it's going to be, it'll give us an indication of where the country is at politically. It's, it has been a long-time progressive, <clears throat> or should say conservative, party of Canada's stronghold. The polls still seem to favor the conservative candidate, but it's a different scenario this time around. And you have the People's Party of Canada, you have the Centrist Party, and you have this new United Party of Canada as well. Uh, the issues up there that are top of mind for people, inflation, the housing crisis, immigration. These are really the, uh, the touchstone issues that are driving the campaign platforms. It was a really great discussion and debate. All of the early, that I reran earlier today on this channel, and many of you may have seen that, that uh, I, I'm calling it a, a debate because at times there was debate, not just discussion or not just uh, candidates reciting their platforms or reading from a sheet of talking points, which is so often what is what happens during these all candidates forums, which is pretty dry and boring. It was a lively discussion and I think very worthwhile. In addition to that, we made this platform available to every single candidate running in that riding. I can tell you that the conservative candidate, Jamal Giovanni, has not been doing any media interviews that I've seen at all. I know that he has been hiding from the media entirely. He has been refusing, turning down interviews. He has not participated in any debates. They did, his campaign team did message back to say that he would ultimately, like the day of the event, uh, said that, no, he's not going to be attending. So he didn't participate in ours either. He is the front runner, according to the polls, because the riding itself, as a conservative stronghold, used to be held by the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Aaron O'Toole. When he left or stepped aside, that left this riding open, which is why we're having the by-election. But it's hard to debate somebody when they don't show up. So that's the strategy he's using, is to just coast, ride the coattails of the former leader, he's thinking all the way to victory. But some of these other candidates have pretty strong platforms. It'll be an interesting day on Monday when voters go to the polls. And as I say, each of the candidates was offered an opportunity not just to participate in the all-candidates debate, but also to appear on this platform for a feature-length interview. Of all the candidates, eight of them, only one took advantage of that opportunity to reach voters in a pretty efficient way here online in a full-featured interview. So we're going to bring that back and run that for you on the other side of this message, Grant Abraham of the United Party of Canada will join us to talk about the launch of his, it's a brand new party, the United Party of Canada, and uh, his, his new party, well, it's, it's getting some exposure in this by-election in the riding of Durham.
So uh, when we come back, we'll talk to Grant Abraham again. Some of you may have seen him on the previous program where we ran his feature interview. He returns now in just a moment. Feel the vibrations. Our quest continues. The truth is out there. The information war is raging. Truth without integrity is worth nothing. Maverick News. Because those who have power and those who seek it must be held accountable. The world is watching. Join our family of truth seekers. Donate today and add your voice to the chorus of Maverick Knights. Donate at maverickdonations.com. Truth. Integrity. It's the Maverick way. Maverick News. The world is watching. Grant Abraham, thank you so much for joining us on on the program again. It's great to have you back, and you have exciting news. Yes, I do. It's good to be with you again, Rick. Uh, I think the last time we talked was at the launch of my book briefly, and then after the Conservative Party leadership race. And I'm here today with, yeah, some exciting news because um, myself and, uh, and thousands of Canadians across this country have looked at the political landscape. Uh, all of us probably would be def- would have been defined as Conservative Party members, and we're we're simply looking at what the Conservative Party is not doing, and forming a new party called the United Party of Canada. It's a uh, it's a party that seeks to return Canada to its bedrock values, to start to make sense again of the chaos that we're seeing in our country. It's a it's a party that is interested in the bottom up. Uh, the way the Conservative used to be in terms of the grassroots. And it's a big tent party that's bringing together the broad in, uh, the broad issues across our country for conversation so that we can actually have the real conversations about what is actually deconstructing our, our nation and what makes us ask the question, where has our country gone in the last eight years? And the answer is not just more money or or cutting carbon tax. There's a, there's a deeper molecular issue going on in our nation that I think we need to talk about. And I think many uh, uh, conservatives across the country are waking up to that conversation and, um, and joining the discussion with us. So that I think for you is the key, right? Is, is first of all, to get focused on the foundations of the country, the things that, that made Canada, Canada to begin with, 
Uh, can can you speak to that and to the to the need to recognize also the supremacy of God as mentioned in this book, the Constitution and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Well, it's uh, I mean, we're going right down now really into the DNA of the nation. And I think that's probably where I was hinting at in terms of bedrock values. I mean, our charter is very clear. This nation was founded upon the supremacy of God or principles um, relating to the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And regardless of what you think of God, uh, there's a framework that came to this nation with the Christian faith, whether it's Catholic or Protestant. And that was was basically love, love your neighbor as yourself and don't do harm to others. And right now we're in a position where we have forgotten as a nation the concept of the supremacy of God. I would go further and say we've forgotten the reality of the existence of God. Um, I personally would take the view that he's not an indifferent bystander. He is involved in the affairs of men and women and nations. And uh, for generations, Canadians have held that belief. And part of our problem is that we've stopped having our conversations in the concept of those values. You know, I was just in Edmonton and uh, listened to uh, Tucker Carlson and Jordan Peterson talking about this very issue. And Jordan Peterson talked about God in the sense of a transcendental good because he, was, he, he couldn't deny the existence of a transcendental evil. And it's not very difficult for Canadians now to see that we have a major corrosion of the value framework of our nation that's deconstructing it. And so um, unless we start to get into these value issues, we can't really have a serious discussion about, about fixing the real root problems if we're just talking about, you know, money and tax, because it's so much deeper than that. And that, that's ultimately why the Conservative Party of Canada is providing a shallow offering to Canadians because they're not having the real conversations that Canadians need and want to have. And I'm, I'm seeing that on the street. Um, and so right now, we're in the midst right now and running in a, the by-election in Durham, Ontario, the Durham constituency on Ontario. And this is, is live in discussion now in Ontario as of yesterday. So these are the kinds of conversations we want to be having with uh, the constituents of Durham uh, in the next three weeks before that election on March 4th. And this is, a, this is a conversation that calls to Canadians, particularly conservative Canadians that are embedded in the Conservative Party that, that value you know, freedom, the primacy of parental authority, uh, that value f the freedom of faith uh, in our nation as values that built this nation to really look at what is happening in our country, the deconstruction of the, the, the kind of pillars that built this nation and look and ask themselves what the conservative party is not doing to stop that. And I think there's a huge conversation there. That's that, that is essentially what I've taken the time to write a book about, uh, to wake up the social conservatives in, in Canada, whether they're mm -hmm. they're Sikh or Muslim or Christian, and to look and say, we've got bigger problems. We can't just get hung up on the tinsel that the Conservative Party is hanging out on this, this dying tree called Canada. And so, um, yeah, real conversations we, we've got to have. And I think that's uh, why I appreciate talking to you, because you're, you're, you're good to go there to have these conversations.
Yeah, what we're talking about here, I think, is globalism. It's the uh, uh, the connections with the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization. It comes down to an issue of sovereignty and Justin Trudeau's vision of a of Canada being the, the world's first post-nation state. Yeah, and that is uh, deeply concerning. And I, I believe that when Justin Trudeau said that, uh, most and many, if not probably by far the a great majority of Canadians didn't flag that as a significant statement for the country when he made it in 2018. Um, that's deeply, deeply concerning. It is the narrative behind the changes that we're seeing happening with regard to the influence of the WEF, with regard to um, the World Health Organization starting to take uh, the primary decision-making authority for our health in Canada in the event of a pandemic. We're seeing the, the, the changes of the definitions of pandemic to make it easier to define one. And um, this is all poured into a, a punch bowl in Canada where we have significant regional alienation. Um, and um, another pandemic is going to open up a Pandora's box of other issues around the freedom. We already saw the intervention of the convoy in 2022 and i can tell you uh, coming from calgary that is um, never far away from the surface in terms of processing both what the liberal party is doing and also what the conservative party is not doing and so you know even today we're in a conversation now in alberta uh, where we've had daniel smith pass legislation affirming parental authority and uh, seeking to block uh, children transitioning before they're 18. And we have unions. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. It's, it's supposed to happen today, uh, June, uh, sorry, excuse me, February 7th. We have uh, teachers um, seeking to take children out of schools as part of a protest in opposition to this legislation. And um, and we have a conservative party who isn't commenting on it, on what a conservative premier is doing in Alberta. And that's a that's a shocking paradox. And really, we should be talking about why there's not broad affirmation, because so many Canadians, a, a great majority of Canadians would stand with the premier's position. They just don't want the hassle of having protests and um, very intense people opposing this issue. So uh, it's time for conservative-minded people on, you know, whether red or blue, on these kinds of issues to, to re-engage and ask why it is the Liberal Party's facilitating this. This isn't about freedom. It's not really a health issue. It's an elective surgery. And um, why, why we aren't defining health as intervention for illness. And, you know, there are deeper discussions here for our nation. Why do you think Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party of Canada is afraid to address these issues? Are they just trying to cultivate some, some of that liberal voter base? Are they afraid of being attacked? And why are you, and, and why are you um, not afraid to talk about it? And do you think that that can lead to you being elected? Well, I think it can because I think Canadians are fed up with uh, these issues going on beneath the surface that are the elephants in the room that we don't talk about. So I, 
I believe that it's time for fresh voices in this country. I'm not a career politician. I'm someone who's looking at this, this ecosystem in Canada, this political ecosystem and these changes that are happening in our DNA without us really understanding why, like in what universe, and I want to come back to your question after I, after I make this comment, but in what universe would we ever have any government that is in authority uh, taking a position where we're changing the substantive framework of the nation, you know, a reset, uh, um, a post-nation state, which means our, our sovereignty is shifting to other places that aren't elected and that we don't have any real leverage of control over as a democratic people. In what universe would that ever happen without a referendum or a clearly stated platform in, a, in an election mandate? And, and that is why um, we're seeing this happen. In my view, the, the decisions that have been taken to do that are ultra-virus, which is a legal term, which means they're outside of the authority because they haven't had the mandate. And we're into a real question of legitimacy here uh, in terms of some of these substantive changes. The people of Canada are, are feeling that um, and continue to feel it. And they, they, I believe, and many other people that have gotten behind this party's formation believe that we need to have those conversations. Why is Why are the Conservatives not engaging it? I think that they are working on an election calculus right now where they don't want to uh, trip minefields. But that's not leadership. That's electioneering. We have, we, have an, we have a scenario where we have a conservative party that was formed out of, uh, well, what? The Alliance Party and the former reformers together. And we've had 20 years now of a scenarios where we have defaulted to fiscal conservative issues and we have said to the a, a, a huge uh, swath of the conservative party that we are going to deal with those so, social conservative issues whatever life euthanasia abortion whatever however you want to define those in whatever context we're going to deal those when we have deal with those when we have a majority when we have power when we sorted out the economic issues. And that was Stephen Harper's position back in, you know, 03, 04, 05, 06. Uh, and the social conservatives have sat inside the Conservative Party waiting for these changes. And uh, the most recent evidence of that is this policy convention the Conservatives had. Everyone traveled from all over Canada to bring their policies to the, to the table and, and, and probably establish value-affirming policies that would resonate with the membership of the Conservative Party. And Polyev's uh, position was to simply say, none, there's no guarantee that any of these will make it into an election platform. So, you know, I, I see social conservatives, and I was one of them within the Conservative Party, as people that have are, are essentially abused that are sitting there waiting for the abuse to stop. They're almost like they're in Stockholm syndrome, and you know they they like the party. They're worried about um, they're worried about Trudeau not getting in again. But the real issues are not being advanced consistently. And I I found it very interesting in the research for the book that I've written. This discussion that Stephen Harper, the comment that Stephen Harper made at a Civitas speech. In 2003, he said that Canada is facing a dark moral nihilism, that 
actually has a hatred for the Western democratic values. And I found that comment very interesting because 20 years later, that is actually what we're dealing with. And I think the, the irony of that or the sadness in that comment was that he stated it in, in philosophical terms. He didn't just call it evil because we're now dealing with you know, drag queens reading pornography to our children. We're having fundamental discussions about not being able to define what is a, a male or a female in our nation. And, um, and that, that uh, lack of definition in the Conservative Party took root. And in 2006, we had young Conservative MPs saying, we, we've basically tamed the social Conservatives in our nation and they've, they've kind of gone along without a, without a peep, those embarrassing and bombastic people that came from the Reform Party. Um, and that happens to be a lot of Western Canada. And um, no longer is it enough just to get rid of Justin Trudeau. And I think that's why people are waking up, particularly in Western Canada, although our, the people that have joined this discussion within the United Party of Canada are from right across the nation that are looking at and seeing the deeper issues. And those deeper issues, I think, are threatening to really tear the country apart because we're seeing, I think, a growing separatist movement in, in the West. Quebec still has some discontent uh, and, and with the pandemic and the lockdowns and everything that has come from that, uh, you know, we're seeing even the creation now of, of your party. Um, but it's your desire, I guess, to keep Canada together. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, this federal discussion is, is a very important discussion. I think that it is in talking to Ontarians, as I've gotten deeper into discussions with people in Ontario and in the Durham constituency on this issue, um, this conversation comes up about the regional, you know, equalization payments, some of the uh, voting reform that we need in the country. And some of their, the attitudes interesting to me coming from Alberta, talking to Ontario people because they'll say, oh yeah, we're aware that there's this discontentment in uh, Western Canada. Maybe we should let them, just let them go. You know, and I think uh, that's such an interesting conversation because there's no realization about the, you know, the subsidization of central Canada coming from the, coming from the West. And many Western Canadians feel like it's time to stop being a colony of a colony. So this just isn't some idle regional threat that, you know, people look west and think, oh, there's all those people out there that are, you know, marginally discontented. They'll be fine, you know, after the next election. I don't think it's like that at all. I think there's deep issues here uh, in relation to uh, discontentment across the country. And then I think this is one of the issues that folds into a discussion ar around the PPC, too, is that we've got this massive block and energy of Western Canada that is that feels curtailed and, and blocked. Uh, and we've got um, the P a PPC who is really not having that these conversations at the deeper issue. It's not good enough just to talk about freedom because that's a little shallow now on its own without looking at the root systems of what freedom is actually about. And um, I bump into this conversation with PPCers across the country. I've been on a book tour this last four months right across the nation. And uh, when they hear my discussion about this, they'll ultimately say, why 
if you're starting a new federal party, why aren't you doing this inside the PPC? And I, my answer is, well, um, I, I view this as a, a challenge to our nation in, relation, in, in, in the context of light and darkness, um, good and evil. And uh, when I look when I look philosophically deeper into the, 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 I guess, the People's Party framework, I see a framework that is libertarian, which is inherently rooted in humanism. And the conversation ends up with me saying, how do you, you uh, resist a darkness within a, a party framework that denies the existence of the source of light? And um, I usually get um, two reactions. One is an explosion. Um, and the other one is this cold reality that if anyone is believes in a transcendental good or a God, they're recognizing that the philosophical framework of the PPC does not recognize that. And uh, for many Canadians, 53.3% still, they still identify with the Christian faith, whether they go to church or not. There's a value system there that resonates um, whether they're God-fearers or they're active parishioners. And to say that there's uh, no God and he's not interested in the values or how a nation conducts itself um, is, is morally offensive. And whether someone is religious or not, recognition of the supremacy of God is important because without that, it's Justin Trudeau who decides what's moral or a government that decides what's moral right. and right. And we don't, I mean, I think at a, at a very innate level, that core level, Canadians don't want to believe that we could live in a country where this no, even if it's a notion of God, this notion of God is replaced by a government that is prepared to trample over charter rights, that's prepared to freeze bank accounts, and there are still ripples, recoiling ripples happening from that with, you know, I speak to one, I spoke to one uh, pensioner uh, who was a part of the convoy last week. And he is still dealing with the fact that his pension was frozen uh, and he's only just got it reactivated and he's not getting it reimbursed for the time that it's it, that he's lost. And I think it's nearly 10 grand that he missed payments on. That's a problem. If government breaks a contract like that, that's a problem. And this is the rankle that is beneath the water line, if you will, within the, the you know the kitchen tables of our nation. It's it, it's what's going on, what people are feeling, and this is part of the momentum that's driving these kinds of discussions. And and I'm I'm actually here because I love Canada. And I and I believe that it should be uh, a federal a federal state from sea to sea, um, but until we actually have those conversations about what that means, we are marching towards the loss of our sovereignty and and regionalization, if not separation in the nation. So you know that's that's openly talked about in Alberta and Saskatchewan and large portions of BC regardless of what the Fraser Valley uh, politicians would tell you. So these are real issues. Manitoba is similar. There's conting large contingents of Manitoba where they feel this way strongly. So this is, uh, this is something that is, I think, changing the national d discussion uh, for our nation. And uh, the conversation starting in Durham now in this next three weeks. So 
you are no doubt, and I, I, I'm not aware of, of any of this, but I can, I can imagine you must be enduring some attacks from the Conservative Party, from PPC supporters accusing you of being controlled opposition or, uh, you know, you're just out there splitting votes. Um, how do you respond to, to, to that? Well, I haven't had any of those texts because I think that the party was just approved before uh, Christmas and we and nothing really happened um, until after Christmas. And so it's yeah. very, very fresh. And I think the attacks haven't started because um, it's been irrelevant to them yeah. or it hasn't been observed. Um, th there's an ongoing conversation about splitting the vote, um, particularly from what I'd call social conservatives um, who are looking at this and saying, well, all we got to do is get rid of Trudeau. Uh, usually when I have the conversation uh, with them, they'll kind of either go back in denial or, or cancel their membership. And when they, when, they, when they move away from the party, they'll say, what should I do about this? And I said, well, you know what? Send a message, cancel your membership. And uh, I've had that conversation a lot across the country. Um, I think my answer now for splitting the vote as it, comes to the Conservative Party, I'm not so much concerned about the PPC. Um, I have my views on where they're at in their life cycle. And uh, I know Maxine Bernier, I've met Maxine Bernier, and he, he strikes me as a very nice uh, man. I think he loves the country. I think he's working towards attaining 10% of the vote uh, over the next five or eight years or whatever. And uh, I don't think we have time to kind of work at that calculus. So I'm just, you know, saying those are freedom loving people. I uh, celebrated the, the, the birth of the PPC because I saw the tyranny that was going on and wasn't challenged in our country. But I think the conversation has moved on. It's deeper. It's got these uh, inherent value issues that people are, people are discerning. And uh, in relation to people challenging this discussion about splitting the vote, that, discussion is is a very interesting one because my answer really now to that is the conservative party has been splitting the vote for 20 years this party is the response to that because what they haven't done has caused such a disgruntlement within the ranks of the conservative party that people just haven't had an alternative and so um if i had uh seen the integrity or the moral integration that we needed in this country within the Conservative Party, I wouldn't be doing this. And I had a very good look at the belly of that beast. So do you, what are you doing to get things organized? Just, just give us a, a little bit of insight into the background or what's going on behind the scenes as you're ramping things up for the next election. Well, we're, we're working on all the normal systems that you'd expect to see within a, um, a federal party that's seeking to attain power in this country or influence, um, be a neck that turns the head and even in terms of a minority position. So we're, we're developing the infrastructure that we need to do. We're building team across the country. We're running in this by-election uh, in Durham, Ontario, that will position the party for hundreds of seats to contend across the nation. Uh, this, this is not a flash in the pan. This is something that is, is an alternative now for Canadian voters that are interested in the deeper conversations and returning the nation to the bedrock values. 
and allowing people to feel secure, return to prosperity, bring our country back to, uh, to wealth and prosperity, freedom, and the greatness that our country was. Right now, we have deep, deep problems that we're not actually talking about the root cause of them. You in your book, this is the battle for the soul of Canada, firing the forge. You you refer to convoy conservatives. Um, what what exactly do you mean by that? Well, um, <clears throat> I picked up on that term actually because I read Tasha Carradine's book, um, which who's the name of the book I can't remember, um, but she talks about convoy conservatives she refers to them as kind of these people that are on the fringe of conservatism in Canada I think I don't want to misstate her I'm just going from memory and um, and she kind of sees them as very shallow conservatives I think in my estimation of her analysis of them um, I I kind of I guess I redefined that term in my analysis and I I talk about the convoy conservatives as the people that will be catalytic for the rebirth of conservatism because they, they're actually the people that are deep, are reacting deeply to the loss of sovereignty and freedom of our nation. Um, and so they're the orphans out there that have turned their back on the, the legacy parties. They're the people that joined the convoy because they knew that there was something deeply wrong and they showed up to stand for freedom. Um, you know, they're the people that are looking and saying, we have a value drift in this nation, which is making the country unrecognizable. And we're not hearing the conversations that will reflect the Canada that we love or that reflect the Canada that we love. And so that, 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 that tag, if you will, of convoy conservatives was kind of a negative, uh, almost derogatory term assigned to these people that Pierre Polyev may woo into the Conservative Party to help them with the next election, uh, but that I'm suggesting are are properly people that have already left and won't come back to the the big blue tent of the Conservative Party because they see the deeper issues. And um, I think that would be a lot of the truckers and farmers and uh, people that maybe don't vote out there normally that um, know that they need to find a voice that is speaking to the full complexity of these issues at a what I call a molecular level or a, or a deeper issue than just more money in your pocket or, you know, bringing home apples. Because it's so much more than that right now in our country. When I go out and speak to people in public, and I think like yourself uh, here in Ontario, it seems most people are still sort of asleep when it comes to politics, even after the pandemic. And if they're asleep or sleepy, they're probably not entirely aware of these global issues that we've spoken about. So how do you create a message that resonates with them? I think the CPC, Pierre Polyev, they, 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 they're, they're, enjoying some success right now in the polls because they have a very simplified message. It's a marketing tactic to just deliver something that people can understand. But if people aren't awake beyond maybe the, the 10% of 
the population out there that is aware. How do you make that resonate with people and have it seems like you have a twofold issue. You have to wake them up and then get them to vote for you. Yeah, and I think that um, there's a timeliness to this right now because I think that you're, the point that you're making was a lot harder two years ago. And I think that as we go along, we move closer to a U.S. election. We're seeing what what is happening down in the U.S. We're seeing we're seeing um, we're seeing discussions that are happening in in Alberta. And I attended the um, the UCP. AGM in Calgary right before Christmas. It was in November, I think it was. And there were what? About 4,000 people in that room for that conference. The singular standing ovation that Danielle Smith got was when she raised the discussion about the primacy of parental authority. Standing ovation in that room. More than any economic discussion. Uh, There were other ovations that she got and some people stood up for other issues, but the room stood for that issue. So there is this discussion about what is our perception of reality and what is actually reality out there in terms of people's minds. And I actually think there's a much higher level of consciousness to these these issues in the country right now than, than maybe we think there's a, an awakening. Um, and I think also we've got this these discussions now that are very real across the country in terms of policies that are being pushed, like protecting the innocence of children until their majority age, um, which um, is is a flash right now in Alberta. And this is becoming a value discussion for the nation. And this is waking people up because in rooms across the country, whether it's Sycamus, BC, or Stetler, Alberta, or, you know, Kindersley, Saskatchewan, whatever, um, you talk to people about the, the protection of their children and the innocence of their children. And uh, it's pretty clear in the room that anybody would bleed or die to stop their kids being interfered with and that innocence being lost. And so these are very deep rooted issues that are actually pulling people out of the malaise that Canada was in five years ago before COVID. And so part of the answer to your question is that I think that people are waking up because I think there's a confrontation going on right now in the nation with these issues that we're actually speaking to. And it's very obvious that the Conservative Party is not speaking to. And so there's a lot of criticism right now in relation to why uh, Pierre Polyev would send a memo around, if, if that's a true story, I, I think that it is, uh, saying that the Conservative MPs are not to comment on what's going on. It's a very curious thing to me that we have Leslin Lewis, a Conservative party MP uh, issuing a petition around the nation where she's got 60,000 signatures, but the, the, the Conservative Party of Canada is not behind it. Pierre Polyev, to my knowledge, hasn't commented on it or signed it or neither of other caucus members. Why is that? Why is that? And so I think that there are a lot of people that are awake. They just uh, don't think that we can have a political solution. And I think in this nation, if we're going to protect this amazing country that we have, we have to have these conversations. And that is why myself and thousands of other Canadians have come together to form this party. When I listen to people who say that they don't believe there is a political solution, that really concerns me because if we don't have a political solution, the alternative to that seems 
pretty extreme. But those same people seem to have concerns about colonialism. They have concerns about, you know, Canada's attachment to the king. Um, I don't. Um, where does where does this new party stand on on those kinds of issues? Yeah, that's a really it's a really good question. I think it's a, it's a tough one because to have a, a new party that hasn't won a seat talking about constitutional reform seems like a stretch but i but i actually think that that's what we need to be talking about in this country because it's clear from this last three or four years that our what should be the balance of powers within the systems of government that we have to ensure peace order and good government and and the rule of law and due process are protected have failed us and we have courts um, that make are making decisions where uh, Canadians are seeking relief from the court and courts in terms of charter issues, and they're, they're, those applications are being denied uh, because of little procedural rules when they actually have constitutional merit. And I'm thinking about Brian Peckford's case uh, with the federal court, court there. Um, so we have all of these systems that <clears throat> Canadians have some real questions about whether they're actually working. We have the politicization of the of the RCMP, or at least the alleged politicization of it um so i think it's i think it's time the only the only person an individual in canada that can actually intervene and interrupt the authority of justin trudeau is the governor general um, who justin trudeau appoints and that's a direct uh linkage to the crown i think it's time uh, for Canada to become and form itself as a new nation. I think we we definitely need to reforge our country. And um, I think there's going to be a timeliness to that. I think that the agenda would, <clears throat> would be to see Canada stay contained as a federal state. It's an amazing, beautiful country with, I believe, a significant purpose to play in this, this world we're a part of. Um, but we've got to fix some of those issues to prepare us for the next 150 years because we've got to the, the spool of thread that has been our 1867 constitution, I think, has spooled out. And we've seen that it, there's too many pieces of it that aren't working and that the nation and the people have been vulnerable to abuse of a minority party, which goes back to my comments about legitimacy of of the government and the mandate that they have to make the changes that they've made so to be clear you know here here at the end of your book you talk about accountability and you say uh well you say that the you, you remind the prime minister that the minister of justice the governor general swear um allegiance to well, it's Her Majesty, but His Majesty now, the King, not the Prime Minister. And the stakes are very high. Public sentiment requires that Mr. Trudeau and his handlers think carefully on this caution. But as I'm listening to you, well, that to me seems like there's some constitutional protection for, for the public because of our attachment to the monarchy. Am I hearing you correctly when you're, am I hearing this correctly? Are you saying that you would be in favor of decoupling from the monarchy? Yeah, that you're reading from an appendix in the book, which yeah. was uh, uh, a memo um, that I 
that I wrote um, on what I learned from a working committee that was seeking to insert Agenda 2030 principles and displace them from the value framework that's it's our nation. And so that was that would have been written uh, late 2020, and it was written for a specific purpose. And I think what I'm saying is that uh, w- the direction that Trudeau was was going in in terms of resetting and post-nation stating is a violation of the sovereignty of the Canadian people. Right. And uh, I think I went as far as to suggest that that's treasonous. I, I think that that continues to be my view, um, especially in light of the fact that those kinds of groundswell changes you would normally expect to be articulated in a platform to get elected or in a referendum. And we've had neither of those. In fact, the direct quote, I think, is COVID has provided us with an opportunity for a reset. And who changes the fabric of a nation because of a health pandemic? Um, so, yeah. there, you know, there, what's the agenda driving these changes? The, the, the only explanation, the prima facie explanation, is that there's a migration of our sovereignty away from the Canadian people. That's, that's a big problem. Um, so do I think that the system has failed us? Yes, I do. I think it's failed us, and I think we need to look at constitutional reform at the appropriate time. And I think also, you know, I celebrate the heritage of Canada, Canadian and French and all the new cultures that come to this country. Uh, but perhaps it's time now to decouple from that that kind of constitutional monarchy framework that we have and establish ourselves as a as an independent nation where the people of Canada become the sovereign authority and that our elected officials answer to the people. So this may be premature because the party is so young, but are you then looking at reforming? I hate to use that word because of fuel reform party, but are you looking at a a nation that is uh, more of a republic then in in structure? I think that's inevitable, but I I don't think that to to start to have a conversation about uh, reframing the constitutional framework when we haven't actually dealt with the threats that are undermining the, the existing stability of the nation and the security of this nation. Uh, it's, I don't think it's timely, but I think that we've got to look at how we got here and we've got orders in council being made that aren't even being brought in, in the midst of the pandemic that are radically changing this nation, you know? Um, and we've got other issues that are going on that I think have left a lot of conservatives scratching their head too, just on value issues like bill C4, the conversion therapy bill. We have every single conservative MP signing that, which will assign parents a criminal uh, indictment in the event that they pray for counsel or take their, their kids to someone to talk about not changing their gender. Uh, a criminal offense for that when, when, you know, sexual tampering may only be two years. I mean, five years for parents going to jail. It's that, that, that blows my mind. It blows a lot of uh, conservative people's mind. And it's just a conversation. If you talk to conservative MPs about it, it's kind of, there's like a quiet embarrassment and it's like, let's move on. But that happened. Why did that happen? There's no explanation for that. It's not good enough to say I didn't understand or we were under pressure. That's the whole point of having an elective representative from the grassroots of a community. And so I know uh, I sat on a uh, conservative EDA 
Um, and I knew, I know the feeling of the sentiments of conservative people out there in Canada who are saying, we're trying to, we're trying to, from the bottom up, push some of the value issues that we want to discuss. And we never get to push past the, the, the chair of the EDA or the, or the policy committees because uh, there's so much policy being pushed down that's being driven by how we get elected. And that that then is a it's actually a betrayal of the whole purpose of local representation. We've got to get back to those grassroots values. Does the party have a constitution at this point? You know, even in the PPC, there I think there's some dysfunctionality there because they they still lack some um, formal structure, and uh, and there's I know within that party some criticism from the grassroots that they've lost touch with the grassroots. What are you doing in that regard with, with what you're seeking to, to accomplish? Yeah, well, I'm, my goal is to have, we're working on the constitution now for the party. We've, we basically are developing it from some of the existing uh, constitutions that are out there that we see working um, within the conservative framework across the country. And we plan to have that installed and active by the end of June of this year. Okay. So we, we've only just gotten ourselves established as a party pre-Christmas. And so I think that's reasonable to kind of bring the membership along and um, and have, have the necessary AGM and put that in place. Um, you know, that's part of the challenge is that this party is not built around Grant Abraham. I've been an advocate for it starting because I love this country and I think that we need to have these conversations. And there's some deep, deeper issues here that cross not just politics and law and values and even our, you know, these, this understanding of transcendental good. Um, but I'm not building the party around me as a personality. In fact, uh, I'm not involved in, at a director's level. I've actually set it up so that I'm, I'm very transitionable to another leader, but we've got to break ground into this conversation right now. So that's in this sense, it's a, it's a party for the people um and uh maybe i just need to be an icebreaker so we have these conversations and get this going and there may be more competent leaders that come along um as as this develops but right now uh we have to break into the framework of the status quo and have these conversations about these issues that you and i are pinging off of today rick so, so yeah no it's gonna be it, it is a party that's gonna move to its own constitution, it's going to have its annual general meetings, it's going to have its policy meetings, it's going to operate in the same way that I see other um, parties that are accountable in those governance frameworks functioning for sure. <clears throat> and tell me a little bit more about what's going on with this by-election in, in Durham. Well, the by-election in, in Durham was uh, has happened because that was Aaron O'Toole's riding. Um, he resigned in August of last year. It was called uh, about nine days ago the elections on march 4th and that's a very interesting riding because um it has been it's a riding of 120,000 people there's 98,000 people on the ballot um only about 40,000 vote which is very interesting to me uh there was one anomaly there after covid where there was 60,000 out but the standard kind of voting bar is about 40,000 people which means the MPs there are being decided with like 17,000 votes 
Um, and it's it's a really interesting conversation. There, there, there seems to be some good people running. I haven't met them yet in terms of uh, the PPC and uh, the Conservative Party. And I think, uh, I think people have to look into uh, who these people are and have to do their due diligence. Um, but I think I think my message for the people of Durham is that there is a huge nation out there where there are discussions now coming from around the nation that are playing out in that in that constituency and that Canada and maybe this is part of being, um, you know, the biggest, most populous province in the country is that maybe you just aren't vibrating here as much with some of the freedom uh, value issues that are going on. Uh, because of the larger stability of population or whatever. But um, these issues really, this is the first platform that these things are are being engaged and being played out in. And so I think as I'm going around, I'm certainly opening them up. As I have these conversations, Rick, it's fascinating because people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? You're right, Grant. You're right about that. You're right about that. I'm going to think about that. And I like that because it's opening up the minds uh, and hearts of Canadians who actually feel the pulse of our problems. And they're saying, yeah, you know what? You're right about that. I'm going to think about that. Um, and that's what I'm called getting away from this muscle reflex of just voting for liberals or conservatives because we want to keep someone else out. Our country's going over a cliff edge with this sovereignty issue. And it's not enough to keep Justin Trudeau out. We actually need to engage our sovereignty and these discussions. That's the biggest threat to our country. And even though it's highly unlikely that you would form the next government because you're a new party, it, why is it important to get at least one one seat in in parliament? Well, I think one one seat provides that platform. But, it, but I mean, I think maybe the more expensive question is look at look at what the NDP have done as a as minority seat holders within a minority government you know they've uh they've been able to influence strongly left policy influences into the liberal party um almost to the point of making themselves irrelevant but nonetheless their seats have have created an influence even though they could never form government on their own so i think your calculus is probably right it's a very short run to the next general election even under normal the normal uh, staging of elections and um i think that the whole point of running in this durham election is to set us up across the nation and we're building now to be able to place mp candidates in as many seats as possible across this nation for the next general election so in that sense durham is a flashpoint in this discussion because it's changing the calculus and i also think that there's voters out there like you alluded to the convoy conservatives that are going to look at this message and resonate because it's not career politicians it is grassroots uh grassroots canadians that have have got fed up with the political establishment and they're looking for a voice and so we'll see We'll see what the response is. There's a lot of people that love this nation. They're deeply frustrated because they're orphans politically. And this is a home for them. They can actually bring this voice so we can establish a smaller government in our nation, allow people to be free, prosperous, and put our nation back to its status of greatness. This is the discussion. Grant, 
if people want to get involved, support you, do you have a website? How can they contact you? Yeah, you can. Um, you can. Uh, we're going to have Facebook pages in relation to this um, this by election. Um, our website for the moment is called upcanada.org, uh, upcanada.org. Uh, it will change to the United Party of Canada after this by election. We couldn't make any changes because there was a, a by election that we were participating in, and. Um, you'll be able to uh, see the framework of what the party's about. There's a lot of different interviews on there from me commenting on different uh, issues across this country off of the uh, book. And um, it'll be able to give you a taste of where the party's going. And essentially this part, this party is fiscally conservative and it weaves in strong conservative uh, social conservative values into the mix for our nation. So that's the website. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so that's our official logo at the top and that is changing. Uh, that'll be changing March 4th. So we couldn't uh, change that. So, but anyways, that's, uh, that's where we're at right now. Well, you're forgiven. It's a brand new party and you have a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time to get there because I think we are on the, the edge of an election um very soon obviously it has to happen by 2025 so um you've got to hit the ground running and you have in germ that's the start so we're uh yeah we're out at hard now okay grant abraham is there anything else you'd like to add or think that we might have uh, missed no i think i think that's good if there's other questions i'm happy to answer them but um we covered a lot there well um, I think we have covered all the ground today, but I hope you come back and uh, come back often. And you're always welcome here as the uh, uh, the by-election unfolds and as we get into the next federal election. Uh, it's been an absolute honor, a privilege to have you on. This is very exciting stuff, so I'm I'm really glad that you could could do this with us today. Yeah, thank you very much, Rick. Appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. is watching okay well folks we were supposed to do a strange bedfellows episode tonight with Lori but the guest was not able to attend so the strange bedfellows episode which was to run it in, in one hour from now is not going to happen
unfortunately, but I think it will happen next Saturday. So make sure you tune in for that. Now, this brings us to the top of the hour here on this Saturday night. Um, I am going to wrap things up for it this evening. It has been a great uh, two hours tonight. Not three, two, but we'll be back tomorrow night. And I think tomorrow we'll, uh, we'll do something a little bit different. We're going to... I was going to do these things on Friday, maybe Sunday. We'll try it tomorrow. A special episode. We've done it before. I mean, I was thinking of calling it Freaky Fridays. Maybe, I don't know, I have to come up with some other name if we do it on Sundays. But we'll do it tomorrow like we did before when we were going through all the crazy news. The, uh, the you know, the National Enquirer, Weekly World News, um, the globe, that kind of stuff. So we'll get the normal news, the only news you can actually trust. We'll touch on some of that stuff tomorrow. That's always fun. And yeah, Sunday, it'll be good. It'll be great to just lighten things up a little bit with some real news instead of all this crazy, crazy news that dominates the headlines here every day and everywhere around the world. I think we need it. Join me tomorrow night, 6 p.m., right here on the Maverick News Channel. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you to Grant Abraham again for doing that, that interview. Voting day is, as I say, Monday in the riding of Durham in that federal by-election in Canada, a flashpoint in federal politics here in Canada. It should give us an indication of where things are going politically here in Canuckland in the great white north. But I'll be back tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard. Catch you all then on the flip side. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.